Hello, I'm Daryl Bloodworth, and this is Lesson 5 of our study of the Gospel of John. And we're with the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida. We'll begin today with John chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. This, these verses begin one of the most beautiful stories in the gospel, in my opinion. It demonstrates Jesus' compassion and willingness to break down any barriers to reconciliation with God, as well as any story in the New Testament. To fully understand what's going on, though, we need to understand the background. First, who are the Samaritans? You'll recall that when Israel was led out of Egypt to the Promised Land, they eventually settled on land allocated to each of the twelve tribes of Israel. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin were the southernmost tribes and eventually became known just as Judah or Judea, from whence comes the name Jews. When the Israelites demanded a king, Saul was appointed by God as king of all twelve tribes. Following his death, David became king over Judah. One of Saul's sons was a king over Israel for about seven years before the kingdom was again united under David. It continued uh, to be united under David and through uh, his son Solomon until Solomon's death. Following Solomon's death, however, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah split, not to be reunited until modern times. In 720 B.C., the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom. Uh, They invaded Israel, but they did not go as far as, as Judah. And they carried off most of the population, which became known as the Lost Tribes of Israel. The Assyrians also resettled the land, the land of Israel, but not Judah, with foreigners who intermarried with the Israelites left behind. They eventually became known as the Samaritans. Later, the Jews from Judea were also invaded and carried off to Babylon. Unlike the northern tribes, however, the Jews in Babylon did not intermarry but kept their separate racial identity. When they returned to Judea after 70 years in Babylon, the Samaritans offered to help them rebuild the temple and their land because they had a common ancestry in Israel. But the southern kingdom Jews rejected their assistance, treated them with contempt for intermarrying with Gentiles, and refused all help. From that time forward, there was enmity, often hatred, between the Jews and the Samaritans. And as John points out here, uh, Jews and Samaritans don't share anything in common. 
To compound the problem as between Jews and Samaritans, over time the Jews settled in the area north of Samaria around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is really just a large lake through which runs the Jordan River. Just to the north of the Sea of Galilee is the mountainous area known today as the Golan Heights. There was a considerable amount of commerce and travel between Judea, the area around Jerusalem, and Galilee. And the fastest and most convenient way to make this trip was to go through Samaria. And this is what Jesus and his disciples are doing as this story opens. They are leaving Judea and heading back to Galilee through Samaria. Keep in mind that the entire length from the southern end of Judea to the northern edge of Galilee is only somewhere between 120 and 150 miles. But in that small area, no bigger than Orange, Seminole, and Osceola counties in central Florida, were three distinct areas, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. As the scene opens, Jesus and his disciples have just arrived at Jacob's well. This is the well that Jacob dug centuries earlier and eventually gave to his son Joseph. It was well known to all Jews and Samaritans and was near a Samaritan town called Sychar. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling by foot from Judea on their way to Galilee. It's about noon and they are tired, hungry, and ready for a break. They apparently have no food, so Jesus sends his disciples into Sychar to buy food for them. Jesus decides to stay by the well to rest until his disciples return. Well, after the disciples leave, a Samaritan woman shows up to draw water. Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Now, to us, this seems a reasonable request, but it's fraught with cultural baggage for several reasons. First, the woman's a Samaritan. And as John whispers to us, Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Basically, Samaritans and Jews tended to hate each other. So even if this had been a Samaritan man, it would have been a most unusual request. Remember, the reason Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan was so shocking to the Jews was that the hero of that parable was a Samaritan rather than a Jewish priest or rabbi. The second problem is, this is a woman. And good Jewish men, especially rabbis, simply didn't speak to women in public. So she has two strikes against her. The Samaritan woman acknowledges this and asks Jesus, and I think asks incredulously, how is it that you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? She's quite surprised that Jesus would make such a request. So let's pick up the story now in verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. 
It's interesting to note that the conversation at this point follows the same pattern we saw in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. The woman asks a question, what's a Jewish man doing asking a Samaritan woman for a favor? And Jesus responds with a statement that doesn't seem directly responsive, but interjects a spiritual thought into the conversation. Here Jesus talks to her about living water, which is somewhat similar to telling Nicodemus he needed to be born again. Whereupon, she takes the statement literally, as Nicodemus did, although she surely knew Jesus was hinting at something deeper. In essence, Jesus said, if you recognized who it is speaking to you, you would have asked me for the water that sustains life. The woman recognizes that Jesus is hinting at something more, particularly as it pertains to himself. She first says, you have no bucket, and the well's deep, so how are you going to get this living water? But then she makes a snide remark to Jesus. Who do you think you are to offer living water? Do you think you are greater than our ancestor Jacob who dug the well that has sustained us all this time? So she's pushing back hard against this Jewish man who probably seems a little impertinent to her. But Jesus, as usual, doesn't take offense. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give won't thirst again because the water I give will become a spring in the person, gushing up to eternal life. Now these references to living water should remind the woman of the Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would bring living water. And living water, of course, is a metaphor for the Spirit of God. And these verses should remind her of references in the Psalms to the thirst of the soul that only God could quench. A Samaritan like a Jew would probably recognize these references. So by now she surely knows Jesus is referring to something more than his asking her to fetch him a drink of water from the well. But like Nicodemus, she's being intentionally obtuse. And instead of asking Jesus to explain what he means, she makes a reference to the pitiful state of her own life. As we will see, her life's a mess. The reason she's outside the town of Sychar drawing water in the middle of the day, which she will have to haul back to town, is that she appears to be something of a social outcast. It was highly unusual for a woman to be drawing water in the heat of the day, and there were wells in Sychar where she lived. She's wrapped up in the mess of her own life, and her comment shows how miserable she is. In effect, she's saying, I'm so tired of coming here, far from town, to draw water. Whatever this living water is you say you have, give me some so I don't have to keep coming here for water. She's feeling sorry for herself, which is understandable given the present circumstances of her life. Like many in life, she was so caught up in her own problems And the mess she had made of her life, she was unable to recognize or appreciate the hope that was right in front of her. And let's pick up now with verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors 
ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. So at this point, Jesus has decided to confront the woman with the truth about her own life in a way that will cut through the barriers she keeps raising. He asked her to go get her husband and bring him back. Now, Jesus knows she doesn't have a husband, and she says she has no husband. I picture Jesus just slowly looking at her with compassion before saying, That's the truth. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. Well, at this point, the woman is stunned. She, he couldn't possibly know that unless he were a prophet from God. As these thoughts run through her mind, she's reassessing Jesus and trying to figure out how to respond. But she still isn't ready to have an honest conversation with him. It's obvious that Jesus is trying to get her to the point she acknowledges her need for the presence of God in her life. But she's a wounded woman who isn't yet ready to open up to anyone. So she does what many do when the conversation turns spiritual. She raises a theological question, one which won't affect her personally nearly as much as the statements Jesus has been making. So she asks whether it is the temple in Jerusalem or the one in Samaria that's the proper place for worshiping God. Jesus answers her in a way that responds to her question, but tells her she isn't asking the right question. He says, in essence, the day is coming when you won't worship God in either temple. And in fact, they would both be destroyed before many years passed. But salvation is from the Jews. Here he's referring to himself. The time has come that you must deal with how you worship. It must be sincere worship in the spirit. And that's what is important rather than where you worship. I think Jesus is now finally getting through to her. She responds by saying she knows Messiah is coming. And I see her making that statement with at least some glimmer of hope for the future. And then Jesus just shatters her entire world. He says, I am he. Just for a moment, try to put yourself in her shoes. She's trudged out to Jacob's well in the heat of the day to fetch water. Her life's a mess. She has nothing but pain and sorrow in her past and apparently in her present circumstances. And she has no hope at all for the future. This is probably the last place she would expect to find any hope for the future. And who shows up but a Jewish man who at first seems to be rather impertinent. But he quickly says things that pierce her to her soul and force her to confront the state of her life in the absence of God from her life. And after revealing to her things about herself he couldn't possibly know, unless he's divine, 
He tells her he is the Messiah. She is beyond stunned. She's dumbstruck. She's overcome with surprise, shock, amazement, and probably for the first time in a long, long time, has a strong helping of hope. But just at that that moment, the disciples arrive. And so let's pick up with verses 27 through 38. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, What do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more than comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Well, when the disciples show up, they are as astonished as the woman was that Jesus spoke to her. But by now they knew not to question Jesus about what he was doing. I picture them arriving just after Jesus has told her he is the Messiah. She looks at him, looks at the disciples who are apparently looking rather contemptuously at her. She considers what Jesus has just told her, and then she abandons her water jar and takes off running back to town to tell others there what has just happened to her. It seemed to her too good to be true, but it was. The disciples then urge Jesus to eat, but he again makes a statement they don't understand. I have food to eat you don't know about. They don't understand, but he quickly explains that his food, what sustains him, is to do the will of the Father. And he tells them to look about. The fields are ready for harvest. Note that he made that statement in the middle of Samaria, a people most Jews viewed as the enemy of God. John then tells us that the people of Sychar came out to see for themselves what Jesus had to say. And for two days, Jesus remained and taught them. And many believed, telling the woman, we now see for ourselves that this is truly the Savior of the world. There's a break in the story now, and we'll pick up at verses 43 through 54. When the two days were over, he went from that place to Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in the prophet's own country. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, since they had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the festival, for they too had gone to the festival. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. 
when he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover. And they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. So we we pick up the story then. uh, After two days, uh, Jesus uh, teaches at Sychar for two days. And then he and his disciples continue on to Galilee where he had intended to go all along. The reports of what Jesus did at the Passover apparently had preceded him. And he was welcomed by the Galileans who were quite impressed with what he had done at the festival. And then the story continues that he returns once more to Cana, where the story of his turning water into wine would be widespread and well known. And there an official uh, of the king approached Jesus. Given that he's described as a royal official, he was probably in service to King Herod, who had jurisdiction over Galilee. The official's son, who was in Capernaum, about 20 miles away from Cana, was quite ill, apparently near death, and he begs Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son. Jesus' response again seems to say that you, the plural you, won't believe unless you see miracles performed. And here, perhaps, Jesus is testing his faith. The official responds by again begging Jesus to go heal his son before he dies. And Jesus tests his faith once more by saying, go, your son will live. It took faith for the official to accept Jesus' word. He asked Jesus to go heal his son because he thought Jesus would have to touch him or at least see him in person to heal him. But Jesus did neither. He simply said, go, your son will live. He believed Jesus, left to return to Capernaum, and met his servants along the way. They told him the fever left his son at the same time he spoke to Jesus the day before. John tells us something more. The official's entire household became believers. John whispers to us that this is the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The first sign, of course, was turning the water into wine. The second miracle was also performed in Cana. If the first miracle was a minor one, this one is major. Jesus not only heals a young boy at the point of death, he does it remotely. Jesus is in Cana, and the boy is in Capernaum, 20 miles away. With a word from Jesus, the fever departed him, and he was restored to his family. This is a part of the great harvest that Jesus has just told his disciples is ready for reaping. We'll pick up in the next lesson with chapter 5.